and I've started recording. Nice. You ready? Uh, I think so. <laughs> what do I need to know? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Each decade, we shiftily declare we have buried class. Each decade, the coffin stays empty. Where the chains of capitalism are forged, there must the chains be broken. Can you, how can you know that I'm self-censoring? How can you know that you're self-censoring? I'm sure you believe everything you're saying. But what I'm saying is if you believe something different, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. You don't go to poor countries to make money. I mean, the Philippines are rich. Brazil is rich. Mexico is rich. Chile is rich. Only the people are poor. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Why you think our country's so innocent? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I mean, you are a millionaire funded by billionaires. That's what you are. You're not. You're not part of the solution, uh, Mr. Mr. Carlson. You're part of the problem. It's like there's billions to be made there, to be carved out and be taken. It's been billions for 400 years. The capitalist European and North American powers have carved out and taken timber, the flax, the hemp, the cocoa, the rum, the tin, the copper, the iron, the rubber, the bauxite, the slave, and the cheap labor. These countries are not underdeveloped, they're overexploited. Let us be together and recognize another world is possible if we come together to understand the power we've got and achieve that decent, better society where everyone matters. I don't know who created Pokemon Go, but I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. We are the ones that are suffering in the corporations that you're talking about, the businesses that you're talking about, in the warehouses that you're talking about. So. That's the reason why I think I was invited today to speak on that. He's deflected from the actual argument I've had. What I try and do is be fair about Trump. What you do is be relentlessly anti-Trump and relentlessly pro-somebody like Obama. I'm not pro-Obama. I've been a critic of Obama. I'm a critic of the Democratic Party because I'm literally a communist. Um, So just take that into consideration that the people are the ones that make these corporations go. It's It's not the other way around. You're listening to The Tunnels. We're here. Um, This is the podcast made by The Mole. And we are lucky enough to be launching with an interview with Chris Nynan, whose book, Radical Chains, Why Class Matters, is out in shops to be bought today. Um, We're going to post a link in the description so you can go take a look and get your own copy, um, which we hugely recommend. And you'll see over the course of the episode why. So to introduce ourselves, I'm Tom. I'm Fred. And we've been working on the mole for how long have we been? It's been gestating for a long time, but uh, yeah. in the last few months, yeah. it's kicking up a gear more. Yeah. So we posted our first couple of videos a couple of months ago, and now we're ready to launch the tunnels, which will be the podcast that sort of discusses everything from topics we feel are really necessary that we need to talk about theoretical, analytical, news related, um, also have discussions with with guests that we'll um, sort of look to have on and, um, and, and discuss the projects that we're doing elsewhere with the mole, like other videos that will be coming out and one, one series of which we'll be talking about later on um, in this episode that, um, that you've, read, you've been doing lots on recently. Yeah. Um, and the mole is kind of going to be trying to dig this network of tunnels between 
all the different parts of the left that we're going to explore. And yeah, we've got uh, a three-part video series special coming out um, hopefully very soon that's also been gestating for a long, long time. I mean, there's multiple ways that you could uh, you could say that about it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, lots of exciting things there. And we're really looking forward to start the, uh, the bi-weekly episodes, which we'll um, be doing as of June the 30th. Yeah. And bi-weekly as in every fortnight rather than twice a week, because it's a... Yeah, it's phrased with lots of words, with lots of meanings. Good clarification. Thank you. So to the matter at hand, Radical Chains, Why Class Matters by Chris Nynam. Chris is someone who we've been lucky enough to um, produce a, a video with um, in, in the, the past months. Uh, our second video, Socialism Explained, was, was based on a piece that Chris wrote. And uh, he wrote that as a part of the organization Counterfire, who we worked with uh, on that video and may well work with again on other videos and, and projects, as we intend to do with different organizations across the left around subjects that are their specialty, really. And so Chris has written a few books in the past. They are The British State, A Warning, How the Establishment Lost Control, Capitalism and Class Consciousness, George Lukash, and The People versus Tony Blair, Politics, the Media, and the Anti-War Movement. So I'll leave it to Chris to introduce himself a bit further in the interview itself, which we'll cut to in just a second. Um, but first, we wanted to have a quick discussion around the subject of neoliberalism. Yeah, because it's quite key to the text. And in the interview, I don't think we spell it out in kind of analytical terms. Um, and it's going to be one that's very often used in these kinds of discussions. So it's useful to get up front. Um, so neoliberalism is the kind of organizing principle of international capital, specifically starting in like the 70s with Thatcher and Reagan um, administrations coming in and, and really quite drastically, were, were quite a kind of um, radical policy set to change how the state interacts with markets. The way it's kind of commonly understood is that it's a shrinking of the state and the, an extension of the free market into more spheres, more kind of social spheres. So like privatizing uh, nationalized industries uh, that was done by Thatcher a lot. And also the breaking of the labor unions, which was happened obviously with the mining unions under Thatcher. Um, but there's a bit of nuance there where a lot of people are saying now that it's kind of a misdirection to say that it's a shrinking of the state as such, um, because often states have grown in some ways, but it's more like a capitulation by the state to do less ambiguously what the market wants. And as it's kind of become more and more crisis ridden in recent decades, the state hasn't really been shrinking, but it's just been kind of spinning and 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 because the, the state is supposed to manage the contradictions between the working class and the ruling class but under neoliberalism it's more straightforwardly done the bidding exclusively of the ruling class but also come up against more and more crises in doing so i was thinking of some recent examples of in the uk kind of publicly owned services moving into private ownership and i think the most recent one will have been the, the royal mail in 2013 i don't think there's been something since that has there yeah, I think maybe that's like the most recent whole sector that's moved. Um, yeah, well, I mean, there's examples of things like, I mean, the NHS even yeah. now um, sort of beginning to push towards more private treatment. And, and I guess like kind of that more indirect way that um, services are being privatized um, yeah. in in 
by by sort of contractors and and yeah. private companies coming in to fill gaps within a, yeah. a sort of a, a service that's otherwise known to be public and even just the project of austerity in general kind of starving the um those sectors and so like the private sector necessarily grows as a result but it's not kind of as direct yeah uh, one thing about that period is that a lot of people are saying that we're coming into a new period now which people aren't sure quite yet what to call and that it's kind of a sign that even the right wing are using neoliberalism now and it's kind of understood across the political spectrum to have a lot of fundamental failures and to be what we've just come through which tends to mean that a regime is kind of ending uh, when we get that much broad support of what it is, even. And its initial ways that it was touted to be a direction that should be gone in by the likes of Thatcher and Reagan was, among many things, looking at the the investment that had to be made to make good the infrastructure that was mm. growing old and things like the water networks. Yeah. And suggesting that moving the, those expenses across to the private sector was in the interests of of the public where we now sort of see the the results of that being all the leaks that we have <laughs> across the network and yeah. the pollution that's sort of taking place um in our shores. yeah and, and the uk is an outlier in that in the, it's the only country in the world that has fully privatized water yeah it's crazy so so that kind of ideology attached to that that neoliberal ideology that you've just explained there has been the center in the West for the last few decades. Um, and it's the center which is declining rapidly right now. And so both the left and right are defining themselves against it in different ways. And yet both major parties in the UK at least are committed neoliberals still. So there's a kind of depoliticization at the same time as um, a radicalization on all other fronts, basically. <laughs> Yeah, so I found the book myself really useful. Um, I thought that the way that Chris kind of covers the period from Marx and Engels' time through to now, and especially the period sort of post-World War II into the 70s, where this sort of neoliberal era that Fred and I have just been talking about begun through to today and the the struggles over that time and the defeats um, and even the statistics. I think the book is extremely, extremely good read it's it, it really helped put things together that otherwise you normally read about separately and um and i think it makes a, an essential point so um we both really recommend it yeah i think it's a, a kind of clear and important intervention uh at, in a timely way that the left really needs right now to hear do you think um before we cut to the interview i could read a couple of paragraphs here over the last 40 years, the ruling class has enriched itself on an undreamt of scale, but their system has not been able to solve the central problem it confronted in the 1970s, a historically low rate of profit. As a result, their regime has generated a multi-level crisis in society. Increased exploitation has been accompanied by a frenzy of financial speculation, deeper and deeper economic crises, and an accelerated assault on welfare. Far from generating a friction-free world market, as its profits promised, Globalization has led to a renewed assault by the most powerful economies on the poor of the global south, including the forced opening up of markets, all sorts of covert intervention, and open military assault. The results have included millions of dead, a string of failed states, and forced migrations on a scale never known before. 
Meanwhile, the pandemics and the existential threat of climate change have revealed that an unplanned and rapacious relationship with our environment can only end in disaster. Despite this, neoliberal ideas have proved remarkably resilient in official society. In politics and the state, in the media, in academia, and in mainstream intellectual life in general, any challenge to pro-market fatalism is still regarded as eccentric. Thanks again, Chris, for joining us on the tunnels. Um, we thought that it would be great if you could start by telling our audience what it is that made you want to write this book. Well, basically, the book is a kind of response to what I see as a problem, which is that over the last four decades, starting with Thatcher, really, um, there's been a concerted effort by the establishment to try and kind of marginalise and uh, suppress, really, any talk of class at all. Um, and this is happening at a time, ironically, of um, spiralling and record levels of inequality. And those two things, I think, by the way, are not accidental. I think that the um, the Thatcherites, when they unleashed their kind of class struggle from above in the nine, late 70s, really in the mid-80s, crucially, um, it was combined with an ideological offensive against the idea of class. Um, and it's been very effective. You know, it's, class is not discussed much in academia. It's not discussed much in the media. It's not discussed much in politics. Um, and in a way, the big problem is that the left has gone along with this denial. And so you have, you know, the Labour Party dropped talking about class in the 1980s. Whole sections of the left commentaria and intelligentsia basically started to adopt new theories about how society was structured, talking about or accepting the idea that we're all middle class now or that we live in a post-industrial service economy or that everyone's involved in immaterial labour or that everyone's precariat uh, instead of working class. And also adapting to the idea that identity, people's identity is more important than people's social role. And in my opinion, this, obviously it's not true right across the left, but I think in, in the class has been downplayed in much of it. This has been, in my opinion, a disastrous development. Um, and could you take us through, in summary, um, some of your kind of background um, and then how that played into the book? Well, I mean, I was politically became involved really just before the miners' strike, but I was I was kind of involved in the miners' strike, and I remember from my very um, early youth the impact of the miners' strikes in the nineteen seventies. By the way, where the miners managed to really disrupt society, three day week, massive power cuts. You know, there was no question about the power of the working class at the time. And again, during the minor strike in the 80s, you know, there was it was a it was a huge epic struggle that dominated the headlines for a year or more and was a huge thing that was defeated. And then I was lucky enough to be involved um, in organising some of the uh, campaigning and the protests around the anti-capitalist movement that emerged at the beginning of, the, of this century and then in the anti-war movement. Um, and these were, again, very, very big protests, but I suppose a very big and very kind of political, you know, um, very radical, challenging, not just the war, not just aspects of 
of capitalism, but actually, you know, really beginning to mount a proper critique of the whole of the system. I suppose what struck me is that what really the left needs to do is to bring together those broad anti-capitalist mass movements or radical mass movements with the power of the kind of struggles that we saw in the 70s and 80s. And it seems to me that if we want uh, to think about how we can fundamentally challenge the structures of capitalist society, it's precisely bringing together those two things. And so in a way, my political experience has led to, um, to this argument. Thanks. Um, so how would you describe your political orientation then? Um, I'm a Marx. I'm a revolutionary Marxist. I'm a revolutionary socialist. I very much identify with the with the the kind of tradition that comes out of Marx and Engels and the Russian Revolution. And mm. in the book, I talk about some of the less known, well, not less known, but perhaps less talked about now uh, aspects of that tradition. Um, I'm a member of a revolutionary group called Counterfire, and I think that you know now more than ever, given the the series of profound crises that are, that, are, that are racking the capitalist system, we really do need to have um, a return to the kind of politics uh, that, that talks about the way the system functions and that identifies the agents for change. It seems to me this is now a matter of extreme urgency, really. Mm -hmm. um, and we, d we definitely agree with your kind of central thesis um, in the book. Do you see any anywhere like any hope of this kind of class analysis rising again at the moment? Well, very much so, because what you've got is, funnily enough, this happened after I started writing the book, even towards the time when I finished the book, you've seen a return of actual class struggle, classic industrial class struggle in Britain, but not just in Britain, you see it in various parts of Europe, in France, to some extent in Italy, in Greece, in Germany, you know, this just these struggles in themselves and this is one of the central theses of the book is that the 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 kind of drive towards socialism the urge to change things fundamentally comes out of the actual struggles that capitalism itself creates and that that's one of the central insights that marx drew upon that or that marx kind of came up with that you know the the radical ideas about about challenging the very nature of the system are kind of generated by the system itself up to a certain point. And that's a that's a very, very important insight. And so, yeah, I think every generation rediscovers these kind of radical politics at some stage or another. And I think this is the moment when um, these ideas need to be put front and centre of left-wing politics once again. So we felt it would be worthwhile to have a quick chat about a couple of things that are being discussed with Chris in the interview at this point. The the first of which is is class. I mean, essential to the the subject in general that we're sort of that Chris covers in in his book and and the essential need for um, a class analysis. So we we wanted to quickly have a chat about what that really means. Yeah, in a more kind of definitional analytical way. Just so, just so everyone's kind of transparent on how it's being used in this particular Marxist sense. Yeah, so class under capitalism refers to two different groups of people within society, one of which is the bourgeoisie or the ruling class or the capitalist class. They're the people who privately own the means of production, which is the kind of all the raw material that is needed to 
produce the things that we need to survive like food and clothes and various kinds of commodity and then the underclass uh, within capitalism or the working class or the proletariat are people who work with those means of production for a wage so that the uh, ruling class own the labor um, that's being done and the stuff that the means of production with which it's being done and then paid only a portion of the value they create in a wage and the rest of that value is produced as profit which goes to the ruling class so essentially the worker is commodified and and sort of places its labor on a market in a way that it then receives wages which are um its ability to to survive and access the essentials um for yeah. f- for its day-to-day while its labor is inherently sort of being exploited by um the the very fact that they don't receive the full value of what they've contributed they re- they receive the value that's been sort of ag- agreed with the, the 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 owner of the means of production the capitalist the, yeah. the bourgeois class who who then take the surplus value that's produced and and accumulate the capital as, as profits yeah so these are two cl- um fundamental classes with directly opposed interests so it's in the interest of the ruling class to pay as little as possible to produce as much value for them as possible. And it's the interest of the workers to get as paid as much as possible for their labor um, or ultimately to progress towards socialism where the means of production are owned by everybody. And in the book, Chris talks about um, class consciousness and and how Marx sort of described the the objective position of the worker in society as as being the class in itself. And and a fully conscious mm. class as a class for itself. I, I've I've always found that useful yeah. um, way of to sort of think about you know the, the the existence of class and our relation with that and and sort of the building yeah. of consciousness is is the essential sort of ingredient for beginning to direct struggles and com- and bring them together to mm. to sort of use our our combined power um, to to rectify um the inequalities that exist and the injustices that exist in the system yeah and so like the ruling class have quite high class consciousness and act um together with their mutual interests but the working class is quite divided historically and so in their capacity to act together as a united kind of subject acting in their interests to the extent that that is happening is to what level the class consciousness exists so i thought a good quote for this uh, from the book was the reason Marxism is so loathed by supporters of the status quo is precisely because it seeks a way out of economic coercion to collective freedom, an end to our present prehistory, to a real history made by humans through the establishment of conscious democratic control over all aspects of society. Mm. That's great. I love that. And so something else that we wanted to also talk about was the word socialism, because it's it's one that everybody knows, but it's also something which uh, benefits from discussion and sort of an analytical framing. And did you want to start with that, Fred? Yeah. Um, so socialism, as we kind of gestured towards, is the next stage um, in kind of historical development in a worldview Marxist framework. So before capitalism, we had feudalism which is a story for a different day, but think kind of um, Middle Ages, castles, lords. Um, And then we transitioned through the bourgeois revolutions, the capitalist revolutions, uh, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, 
a partially failed British revolution. And so socialism is the next stage after that, theoretically, where we transfer from this current arrangement where the means of production are privately owned to a system where the means of production are owned collectively. And so all of the value produced by people working is instead of advanced to create more profit for private individuals is work towards the better the betterment of society in the interest of everyone because there's no longer these classes that are directly opposed and there's one class the working class in control of production and then again it, that kind of gets us towards another conversation which is what's the difference between that and communism the abolition of class entirely um, but that's also uh, for a different day yeah and I, th- I think um you're talking there about the repurposing of the surplus value that we were talking about into the betterment of society for 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 everybody for the collective and and seen amounts of hoarded wealth that currently exists today being circulated and and there's a couple of statistics here that I thought would be um, particularly relevant. According to a 2021 report published by the right-wing think tank, the Institute for Economic Affairs, nearly 80% of younger Britons blame capitalism for the housing crisis. 75% believe the climate emergency is specifically a capitalist problem and 72% back sweeping nationalisation. Overall, 67% want to live under a socialist economic system. Mm. So that's very encouraging. Mm. And then I guess the next step is like, what do those people understand socialism to mean in their self-reported thing? But now everybody knows a little bit more from that. (laughs) Um, So back to the interview. What is class in the Marxist sense? And what are the radical chains that you get your title from? Yeah, I mean... You know, I was obviously when I was doing the book, I was thinking about why exactly is it that the ruling class or the establishment in general um, desperately wants to downplay the question of class. And there's a number of reasons. One is just that class is the central decisive division in society. Um, the, The ratio of CEO to worker pay in the United States of America is now 320 to one. There's no other division in society that comes close to that kind of disparity and so part of the reason is they just don't want us to think about how unequal the world is nowadays or how unequal our own societies are nowadays but there's more to it than that because class is a social relation it's not just a division it's a social relation and once you grasp it as a social relation um it starts to reveal what Marx called the innermost secret of society because it's it's one thing for them to be worried about us realising that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. The insight they really don't want us to get hold of is the uh, the fact that the rich are getting richer because the poor are getting poorer and that capitalism is a society that is based on a very, very small group of capitalists putting the vast majority of society to work in order to pay them less than the value of the goods they produce. So at the very heart of the class relation and at the very heart of capitalism is a scam, is a robbery, a systematic robbery. And it's that robbery that more than anything they want to conceal um, because once people are aware of that, then, you know, they've got a fundamental critique of really the, 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 the basic drives in society and how unfair and unjust they are. The final thing, and this comes on to the point about radical chains, is that what 
the position that workers are in under, under capitalist society is a, is a kind of unique one. Unlike any other group in society or any other historical class, workers have no interest in, in exploiting anyone. In fact, they can only liberate themselves by liberating the whole of society. And that's why Marx called the working class the universal class. And, you know, this is a very, very, this is a very, very important insight because the bourgeois revolutions in the 18th and 19th century, you know, they had the slogan, liberty, fraternity, equality, but they couldn't realise them. And the the reason they couldn't realise them was because they were, yes, challenging feudal society or overturning the feudal structures, but they were doing that in order to create a new class society that was actually much more exploitative than the previous society, than feudalism. Workers are in a very different position. They own nothing but produce everything. And and that's why, that's why their position is so subversive. And what I think Marx meant by radical chains, I mean, he meant a couple of things. One is that the way workers are oppressed and exploited is kind of, uh, very comprehensive it's very extreme you know workers are mm-hmm. completely marginalized they're completely denied the benefits of the society that they actually produce on the one hand on the other hand that kind of exploitation the form of exploitation and oppression of working people puts them in a position where they're potentially very radical because once workers start fighting back and start to grasp the bigger picture their interest is in overthrowing the whole of society and, and, and creating something fundamentally different and, and actually ending class altogether. So that's radical chains in a nutshell. Marx used the phrase radical chains in the quote, in the formulation of a class with radical chains, a class of civil society, which is not a class of civil society, an estate which is the dissolution of all estates, a sphere which has a universal character by its universal suffering and claims no particular right because no particular wrong, but wrong generally, is perpetuated against it, which can invoke no historical but only human title, which does not stand in any one-sided antithesis to the consequences, but in all-round antithesis to the premises of German statehood, a sphere, finally, which cannot emancipate itself without emancipating itself from all other spheres of society and thereby emancipating all other spheres of society, which, in a word, is the complete loss of man, and hence can win itself only through the complete re-winning of man. This dissolution of society as a particular estate is the proletariat. How are you using and defining the word socialism in the book, as opposed to state capitalism, for example? Well, for Marx... And for Marxists, socialism is is about the the liberation of humanity. It's about the overturning of the existing order, and that means it can't it can't happen through Parliament because, for example, because Parliament is an institution that is part of the of the of, of the establishment, and it's a, an institution that is very carefully patrolled so that its influence and its power doesn't really extend into the heartlands of the economy you know that the city big business the corporate world is largely immune from the some regulation but you know they're largely out of the control of any kind of democratic accountability so there's got to be something more than that and uh, the argument is that socialism can only come from below it can only come from the movements and the 
and the protests and the resistance and the opposition and the campaigning of the vast majority in society. And that, that's because, fundamentally, that's because only a mass movement on that kind of scale has the power to take on the various institutions that are, that are ring-fencing capitalism, that are defending capitalism, that are protecting it. But it's also for another reason, which is that one of Marx's great kind of sayings, great phrases, was that it's in the act of transforming the world that people transform themselves. And capitalism obviously has a kind of degrading effect on everyone who lives in this, under the system. The argument is that it's only in the process of mass resistance and mass opposition and solidarity and the development of a new kind of way of dealing with each other in the process of struggle and so forth that people begin to be um, capable of running society in a new way. So there's a kind of connection between struggle and between people's um, ability to enact this new society, people's spiritual growth, if you like, uh, which I think is, is, is very important. So for all these reasons, socialism can only come from below. State capitalism was something different. I mean, state capitalism was the, you know, the Stalinist sort of counter-revolution after the Russian Revolution, really, which enacted a new bureaucratic, top-down, state-run um, form of, uh, of capitalist power. But all forms of top-down reform or top-down change aren't capable of delivering the depth of change, the, the, the radical change that is uh, necessary in order to restructure things. You know, the, the capitalists have a very strong hold over capitalist society they have not just do they own all industry they own the media essentially they own they run the state really the education system all of these things are maybe at one or two removes but effectively they're supportive of the status quo so you've got quite an embedded system here you've got a very you know a very a very powerful class rule and in order to challenge it, you're going to have to. We're going to have to mobilise, you know, a huge movement that that kind of erodes their institutions and that brings millions of people onto the side of, of of change. And that's really the only way you can realistically talk about challenging capitalism itself. You claim in the book that the defeats of the 1970s were not inevitable. Could you explain to us why you say that? Well, one of, one of the things in the book that I try to do is to show that it's not true that the only times there's been massive insurgent workers' movements has been the period around the period of the Russian Revolution and the First World War and after. Because sometimes even on the left, you get this idea that that was a different world in the period after 1917, the 20s and the 30s, that somehow there's something inherently different from that from now. I don't believe that. If you look at the period at the end of the Second World War, if you look at the period in the 19th, after 1968, you see massive workers' struggles um, after the Second World War. It's very rarely talked about, but it's a very interesting history. In France, in Italy, in Bulgaria, in Greece, whole parts, whole regions of those countries were liberated by working people, not by the Allied armies, as is the normal story. And, you know, a lot of the politics that developed after the Second World War, including welfareism, was a response to that threat. You see the situation in the 68, 70 period was, was different, but there were moments 
particularly in Italy, in, in France in 1968 itself, in Portugal in 1973-74, in Chile at the same period, in Pakistan in the same period, where, again, massive worker struggles actually threatened capitalist continuity. And we have to hold on to that idea that, you know, there is a tradition right through the 20th century that actually extends into our century of workers leading and taking a, a, a central role in movements that have challenged the system. The problem is that, you know, they've been defeated one way or another. And the way that they were defeated, there was big struggles in 72, 73 in Britain. I mean, it wasn't a revolutionary situation, but it was a very polarised society. The working class was very confident, very powerful, very combative, huge strike waves that brought down the Tory government in 1974. So what happened? Well, my answer to that is that not just in this case, but in in most of the cases that I've outlined, the fundamental problem with these movements turned out to be not so much the power or social weight of the working class, not so much the question just of militancy, but the, the question of what ideas dominated in the movements, what organisations, what political strategies were being pursued by the different movements. Just to give the example, in Britain, in the end of the day, the whole of the left or the vast majority of the left, uh, even the sort of radical left, basically took the view that getting Labour in was the key thing and that once Labour, the Labour government was elected in 1974, you couldn't really challenge them. You had to basically go along with the strategy they pursued. I mean, that's a caricature, but that is very much the essential truth of the situation. So you, you had a Labour government that actually instituted as the social crisis, the economic crisis developed at the time, the Labour government instituted an absolutely horrific programme of austerity against workers. I mean, much more and much more quickly than anything the Thatcher um, government did, funnily enough. If you look at the history of the Wilson Callaghan government, particularly the Callaghan government, and that was incredibly demoralising and disorientating because, you know, the Communist Party and other sections of the Labour left were all saying we've got to give the government a chance and support the government. The government was attacking workers. So that was an absolutely disastrous combination. It created a huge amount of confusion. Um, and it depoliticised the movement and led to a situation where Thatcher was able to to win, not that, not that the majority of workers voted Thatcher, but Thatcher was able to get in in 1979 because that particular approach to getting change turned out to be an absolute cul-de-sac, an absolute dead end. So, so one of the central arguments, well, there's the two central arguments in the book, in a way, seem to contradict each other. One is the working class objectively is much more powerful than most of the commentaria even the left seem to allow secondly the issue about subjective ideas the issue about political organization the issue about you know what kind of strategy do you pursue is also more important than most of the left or certainly than most historians are prepared to allow for and you know that you can see how what happens is workers get defeated and sections of the commentary say, oh, well, that's because workers don't really have any power in society anymore. So both sides of the equation are, got, uh, 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 are gotten wrong. Um, we have to get back, I think, to the absolute clear understanding that the working class objectively has a supremely strong hand, has a huge amount of leverage and a huge amount of power. But whether or not people use that or not comes down to 
in the end of the day comes down to political ideas. Mm. And you, you've kind of gone over uh, what I was going to ask about there, but I was just going to ask a little bit more about, um, so, so when you have the limits on the ideas limiting consciousness and therefore activity in these kind of crucial moments where um, there's political openings for change, how do we deal with this kind of cart and horse problem of the conditions create the consciousness uh, that are around at the time? Well, that's exactly the, you know, you're absolutely right. And, and you've kind of outlined the theory of the necessity of revolutionary political organisation. Because it's true that capitalism throws working people into struggle in all sorts of different ways at various different times in history. And when those struggles take on a uh, a real weight, and when those struggles become explosive, as they quite often do, people do change. People change massively. In the strike wave we're seeing at the moment, lots of people have taken strike action, gone on a demo, gone on a protest for the very first time in their lives, and it is changing them. They're thinking about the world in a different way. They're thinking about the media in a different way. They're thinking about the politicians. They're thinking, why isn't Labour supporting us? They're supposed to be Labour. They're thinking about why are the police stopping us having pickets or, you know, stopping us protests. They're thinking, why is the media constantly attacking us? They're thinking, why are the trade union leaders recommending these rubbish deals as well? So people change in the process of struggle, but there remains, even at the high points of crisis, there remains a lot of complicated and complex and mixed and confused ideas because the trade union leadership is still in place. They're still essentially dealing with these disputes as separate sectional disputes they're trying to find compromises rather than recognizing that we need to go we need to make this into a more uncompromising struggle really against the government and against the the the, the, the bosses um the labor party is still there saying you know okay great to take strike action but if you want political solution you have to look towards parliament and me and i'll set you free and all those kind of things so the ideas of the reformists the old ideas don't just evaporate overnight when struggle happens. Marx had this wonderful poetic saying, where he, uh, which was that the past hangs like a nightmare on the minds of the living. And that's absolutely right. You know, you don't shed all your ideas in a short period of struggle or even over a two or three year period of struggle. So there has to be, as well as recognising um, that, that these kind of, this participatory mass struggle does really fundamentally change people you also have to recognize that there have to be organizations there has to be institutions and well maybe not institutions is the wrong word but that's organizations and ideas circulated that are related that are trying to clarify the new view you know in advance of these moments of crisis you have to have a group of people who are saying the labor party says you know, it's all about Parliament. We say it's all about what you do for yourselves. It's all about what we do for ourselves. That the, 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 the emancipation of the working class has to be the act of the working class. So there's a battle of ideas, even at the high points of struggle. And that means we have to have revolutionary organisation. Yeah. There are really useful, interesting and surprising statistics in the book. How was the process of researching these facts and what impact did they have on the book? Do you have any favourites? We've got a few. Well, I think <laughs> that's an interesting question. I think my favourite really is 
because it sort of flies so much in the face of the pessimism and the and the kind of retreat of the left intelligentsia over the last couple of decades. My favourite fact is that the International Labour Organization, which is not a particularly radical group, by the way, it's a kind of very you know, respectable part of the international trade union movement, they um, calculated that in 2014, for the first time in history, the majority of the world became wage labourers. Now, you know, this is in the midst of the, this is right at the high point of the kind of the working class is over, <laughs> the working class is finished, we're all immaterial workers now, you know, no one produces anything, we're all self-employed. All these kind of weird and totally contradictory ideas that that in the, in the global south, you know, the global south is characterised by wasteland populations where no one does any work. They're completely outside of the capitalist system. We're all middle class, apparently. In the, in the, you know, as John Prescott said, in the, in the, in the global, in the global north, um, we're all precarious. It's like a whole range of, of different and more or less bizarre theories. The only thing they have in common is that they all try to deny the central contradiction between a capitalist you know ruling class and the majority in society most societies who are working class um and it seems to me that fact that figure uh, is my favorite really. yeah it's quite a kind of optimistic thing to remember uh, about that that like for all their talk in the background the proletariat kind of just continues to grow quietly uh, and yeah, we've got uh, a couple of other stats which are a bit about that in terms of just the shocking scale of how much the scale has changed between, say, Marx's time and today. Um, another one we had was that um, by the 80s, there were more workers in South Korea alone than in the entire world during Marx's time. So the scale changes is hard to get your head around. Yeah. And um, the other thing, of course, is that, you know, when Engels was writing about the condition of the English working class in the 1840s, which is he was kind of charting the rise of the working class in the in the, in Britain, where it was at its most advanced at the time. And he was saying, you know, he was quite shocked and amazed to see a factory with like two or three thousand people in it. And you look around the world now, I mean, in China, the biggest factories, which are the biggest factories in the world, but, you know, they're, they're between... 250 and 300,000 people working in one factory, in one iPhone plant in Shenzhen. So, so you know, when people say, oh, it's not like what it was in Marx's time, mm. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. I mean, the working class has spread around the world from a small group cluster of countries in the northwest corner of Europe and a little bit on the eastern seaboard of the United States and in one or two other places during Marx's life. The working class has spread around the world. It's, it dominates or nearly dominates in every country um, on the on the whole planet. So, I mean, you know, it's just to have got these things so wrong is just quite it's quite bizarre, really. So here we're approaching a couple of subjects that we also want to provide a little bit of additional context to the sort of context that we couldn't do in the time frame that we had with with Chris and so one of them um, is identity politics. Yeah and so that's something that I think is talked about a lot but not really described or explained very often um, 
it's a strain of politics that's come become dominant in the neoliberal period specifically and it's a kind of radical individualism where people imagine no kind of collectives really explain themselves their own identities um as the most kind of valuable thing the kind of thing that orients your politics and kind of defines your meaning in life and stuff and that can be around any different kind of identity racial identities sexual gender political but less so in a collective sense so and so it has quite an atomizing effect where people become kind of individually oriented activists if they become politically motivated at all which is kind of a bit reduced by identity politics and so it makes collective struggle more difficult and you can see the effects of that pretty much everywhere you look today i think mm. a quote from the book is uh, dealing with class as another intersecting identity doesn't solve the problem this is because the very existence of class contains an implicit critique of existing society not just of inequality but of the robbery that creates it and the oppressions it generates mm. um and so the other term do you want to come to that yeah so the other term was intersectionality yeah and so intersectionality is kind of uh, built on top of identity politics in a way to try to orient around collective things more um but not quite taking a marxist step so it sees all these different kinds of identity on different axes which overlap and so different identities can have shared interests that they can struggle with together on fronts that they share those interests and to try to not cordon off and silo so much these struggles so understanding for example that people of color have shared interests with like women's oppression and so like a feminism that is entirely devoid of any analysis of race for example would be quite ineffective and not very analytically useful in terms of looking at the whole of society which is this complex moving thing in the book chris writes it is beyond time for a strategic reassessment focusing the growing radicalization in society on a politics centered on class offers a way forward certainly one of the strategic prizes for the left at the moment must be to find ways to link the diverse and political movements for change to the potential power of organized and organizing workers both sides benefit from such an interaction when it happens the political movements help to overcome sectionalism and economic narrowness in the workplaces and workers organization brings social weight and new strategic possibilities to the movements the potential for campaigns against war austerity and climate change would be transformed if they could become more centered on workplace power Could you compare and explain the concepts of intersectionality and identity politics for us and to what extent do you see either of them as post-marxist? Well, I don't think they I mean well they are post-marxist. They 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 run sort of parallel or even possibly counter to marxism in a way. Um I mean they're complex issues to talk about in a short time, but I think that I suppose the problem with identity politics in general as a as a kind of strategy for change is that it's based on the idea of sort of self-definition, self-description, self-identification, which all of which is absolutely fine and can very often help clarify, you know, ideas and undermine backward assumptions and all that's fine, but they're not actually about challenging the structures of of oppression, you know, because that has to be an active social process the, the truth is that these oppressions that um exist in society against women against trans people 
against all sorts of ethnic minorities, against Jewish people, and so on and so forth. These oppressions are structured into the system. They have complex and dynamics. And one of the things we have to do as people on the left is understand their dynamics, understand exactly the way these different things are embedded in capitalist society. But they are part of the system we live in. And in a way, intersectionality is, is partly an attempt to kind of come to terms with that and to try and overcome the tendency for different people to, you know, end up seeing their issues as being separate from other people's issues. I know that on some of the Black Lives Matter protests in London, Asian people weren't allowed to speak because they weren't black, they were brown. So there's a kind of, you know, atomizing element to identity politics, which is also part of uh, its problem. The truth is, there is no automatic unity of the oppressed. You know, this has always been the case. It's possible for uh, black people to be reasonably mobilised against racism, but also to be homophobic. It's possible for gay people to be Islamophobic, for example. So the, the, the socialist approach and the argument really that I put in the book is that far from underestimating or downplaying oppression, the point about the socialist uh, class-based analysis is that we believe oppressions are absolutely rooted in, deeply rooted and deeply toxic and deeply dangerous, but they're part of the capitalist system. So we have to oppose them all. We have to fight. And actually, socialists have been at the forefront of the fight against racism, women's oppression, homophobia, all these things. Socialists have always been centrally involved in these oppressions. But we also have to say, and we have to be honest about this, these oppressions are a product of the system itself. And our approach to oppression is very radical. It's saying they're so serious that we're going to have to change the system. We're going to have to challenge the system that creates them in order to eradicate them. We don't, I don't think that racism is primarily a problem of attitude or awareness. You know, of course, attitudes need to be challenged, but it's rooted in the system. It's being promoted. It's being pushed by the, the you know, the establishment, people in power. And we have to challenge it at that level. The, the problem in the Met is not that they need retraining. The problem in the Met is that as an expression of ruling class power, the Met uses racism deliberately to try and, you know, divide people, to try and impose and strengthen the status quo. So there's no amount of attitude train, training in the, you know, in the Met's training schools that's going to make a blind bit of difference. We've got to confront the Metropolitan Police. Actually, I think we, the Metropolitan Police should be abolished. But I don't think it's reformable. I think it should be abolished. And that's the attitude. I think if we're serious about challenging racism, if we're serious about ch challenging sexism and transphobia, we need a much more radical approach than, um, than identity politics. I, I, I mean, intersectionality is an attempt to overcome these um, the, the, the kind of separation of these issues, and that's very positive. The problem is it doesn't really have a strategy. What is the, again, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really point the finger at where the problem comes from. And that's what I think a class analysis does in a way that no other analysis can. So would you say that modern material conditions are producing new theory that can take us forwards, as well as the neoliberal consensus that you point to, which is taking us backwards away from class? Well, of course, things have changed, and it's important, obviously, to recognise that. I mean, there's been a massive amount of change over the last four decades, and there's been a kind of traumatic reorganisation of the capitalist system, 
uh, on many levels. There's been globalization, there's been outsourcing, there's been the whole closure of whole industries, there's been um, massive levels of reskilling and new management techniques. I mean, the world of work has has changed um, quite fundamentally. And that needs exploring. There's a number of good studies and books and and analyses that, that do actually look at the way things have changed. I mean, one of the things that I think has been amongst the more sensible writers uh, on the left over the last few decades has been, sorry, over the last decade, I'd say, has been a quite a close examination of the whole logistics industry and the transport and communications industry. For, there's a book called On New Terrain by Kim Moody, which is, is a, it's really outstanding. I recommend it. And it talks about actually... The reorganisation, the, the the whole globalisation um, process has created a situation where there are these nodes, transport hubs in different parts of the world that that are in, have an incredible uh, importance for the system, and where strike action would kind of clog up the organisation of capital capitalism in whole regions, if not around the world. So the 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 you know I think this kind of work is very very important. That a real uh, examination of the way that the system has been reorganised and redeveloped, but that has to be done on the understanding that that the production of commodities remains the central drive of of the system and there's all sorts of theories even from so-called marxists who say you know who say that um the way that the rich get richer is mainly through um new forms of primitive accumulation you know stealing private the private taking over the public sector um taking things that have been in in the past have been in under some sort of common ownership and and so on and so forth well there there is elements of truth in those things but it's still one of the points i make in the book that if you actually look at the at the where profits come from um even in the world of financialization even in the world where you know the um the stock markets and um financial kind of gambling and different world markets is so central even in this world ultimately the overwhelming majority of profit comes from the extraction of surplus labor the production of commodities for sale on the market by workers and the communication system is part of that the the transport system is part of that and kim moody makes the very useful point that that you know distribution getting goods to the consumer has always been seen as part of the production process. It's, it's integrated into the production process. It's not something that's separate. And that's a very important point, I think, about the kind of globalised, interconnected um, interconnected world. I mean, there's, there's, there's other theoretical advances um, or analytical advances that, that have been made about, I think, about imperialism. I mean, clearly we're in a, a new era of imperialism now. And I think there's some useful analysis of uh, where that new period comes from and the kind of the decline of US power and hegemony, I think is one of the important elements of, uh, of the modern world. And the fact that the US economically is in a much weaker position than it was, say, 40, 50 years ago on a world, on a world stage. It's still militarily by far the most um, advanced, the most powerful 
country in the world. And the playing out of that contradiction, the economic decline combined with the military continuing military preponderance, I think is a very underlying, very important element of the dynamics of the world system at the moment. So that's also been an important area of study, I think. There are others as well, but I'd say those those are two stand out for me. Thank you. What is driving the decline of US hegemony today? What does it look like and how might multipolarity conditions change our political context? Well, I mean, you know, some people on the left say, oh, you know, a multipolar world is so much better. And I can understand then, you know, the world of dominated by the US. And I can kind of understand that at one level. But the problem is that involves a romanticization of what's going on here. Because really what we're seeing is not some move away from a US-run imperial order to some sort of more benign um, fellowship of nations. What we're seeing is challenges to US hegemony by other would-be imperialisms. And so in a certain sense, we're moving into a more in some ways, a more dangerous world. I mean, no one's going to romance the period of of unipolar power insofar as it ever existed, obviously, because it brought us the Afghan war and the Iraq war and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, we are now in a situation where for the first time in decades, we are looking at great power conflict and great power confrontation. And that is a big, big problem. That's really how I would characterise the situation in Ukraine. For me, that it's essentially been turned into a war between um, Russia and NATO that is being fought out on Ukrainian soil at the moment, but could at any time escalate. That's what's behind the the growing tension between China and the US, is that you know the US is terrified of China's increasing economic clout, worried that it's rearming, which it is, and is trying to move against it quickly before it rearms to such a point that it becomes a kind of, you know, a war of equivalence. So for me, all this means that the kind of anti-war element of the movement has to be has to be preeminent, has to be right at the forefront of what we're of what we're doing, because, you know, there's every danger that wider war is going to break out. And in the meantime, the wars that are that are being fought, particularly the war in Ukraine at the moment, has a kind of ideological impact on 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 society. You know, it kind of it does strengthen the Tories to a certain extent and and the establishment. You know, we're fighting a war to protect the people of Ukraine as if. But, you know, that has some traction and that's that can be a problem for the movement. So I think the sort of anti-imperialist element, anti-war element of the uh, of the movements is 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 a very important, in fact, an essential, um, you know, part of what's necessary. And when you have a situation like we did last year, where the TUC voted to increase arms spending uh, in a period when there are food banks and the NHS is in meltdown and the public sector and public services are like falling apart, that's that's a terrible development. Something we have to really campaign about against hard. Mm. It's almost reminiscent of the kind of SDP and uh, the war in the kind of international war. Yeah, kind of going further with that, um, do you think like with this kind of changing conditions that we're seeing at the moment, uh, would you describe neoliberalism as being over? Do you think we're in a kind of transitionary period? And if so, what might the next organising phase of international capital look like? 
Well, I think, I definitely think there's kind of counter trends. There's a move towards more protectionism. There's a move towards more, you know, thinking about national security and national capitalist priorities, which probably will lead to some um, limiting of international trade and also the fact that you're getting wars at all and so forth. I think international trade will be circumscribed by by these developments. And I think these developments also, you know, are part of the whole process that is risking um, risking further wars. What I think we have to be careful of is is the idea that this is going to these are going to lead to any kind of progressive Keynesian type policy because profitability is still at an all time low. The economies around the world are, are flatlining. There's a sort of growing international tension, which is all about economic competition. I don't see any way in which the current ruling classes are going to suddenly decide they want to spend a lot on public services. That's just not going to happen. So although I think there will be a reorientation of economies towards a more um, nationalist kind of setup, I don't think this is going to benefit working people at all. I think we're going to see a kind of an increased authoritarianism as a product of the demands for austerity. The wave of inflation looks like continuing for a while. These, these things are going to lead in the direction of, of more repressive governments, in my opinion, and, you know, more openly anti-working class, more openly aggressive and so on. And that's what we're seeing in Britain, you know, for the first time in since Thatcher, but even perhaps longer than that, certainly, certainly since then, we're seeing governments that are kind of, you know, our government is has a front bench who are openly racist, who are openly kind of dismissive of the right to protest, who are openly um, anti-trade union and, you know, in a very aggressive way. And that's a that's a horrible combination. And it's going to lead to, hopefully it will lead to more resistance. But we have to be honest and clear about the about the kind of ruthlessness of the ruling class that is that is developing at the moment. So, so if we if we like kind of took the conversation that we've just been having and moved it towards sort of the idea of the application of the theory and and praxis and, and, and specifically potentially starting with the conversation around those fragile supply chains that you spoke about, if we were looking to organise around this understanding, um, what do you think that could look like? Well, I mean, you have to start from where people are resisting. I mean, as a socialist, I think that. The beginning of wisdom is to say, you know, we're not dreaming up plans for the working class. We are relating to where working people are already fighting back. And in Britain at the moment and in a number of other countries, that is undeniably in the unions, in the workplaces and so on, over wages, but but actually over rather more than that. And I think that socialist job is to, is to the, the key sort of strategic priority in Britain at the moment, I believe, is to um, is to be building solidarity with the strikes, to be um, arguing that the strikes should be extended and, the, and that the fight over pay should be escalated, arguing against these terrible deals that some of the union leadership are trying to impose, you know, way below inflation that are very demoralising and, you know, way below what could be achieved because we are in a situation where, let's face it, the government is in meltdown. You know, there may be an authoritarian trend, and there is, but there's also a massive crisis in the Tory establishment and and the, and the Tory party. So 
I think we need to be building those movements. But I also think we have to say we have to go beyond the kind of sectionalism that exists in the working class at the moment. And one of the prime things that socialists have to do is to overcome the divisions inside the working class and to to try and develop networks of people who are organising and coordinating across the class at the rank and file level. Um, it seems to me that has that would be my number one strategic priority in Britain at the moment, trying to network between activists in the buses, activists on the railways, activists in the post office, activists in the teachers, in the lecturers, in the in the public in the um, civil service we need to bring those the best of them the, the sharpest activists together to to begin to talk about how can we coordinate how can we extend this action and how can we make it more political because you know mick lynch started out well but now the trade union leaders are backing off any idea that this is political and saying oh this isn't this isn't an argument with the government yes it is an argument with the government the government is in total cahoots with the employers they are organizing and planning how to try and defeat these strikes if people don't think this is a political situation they're in la la land to be honest of course it's political and we need to treat it as political and i would like to see you know um this strike movement turned into a movement that is yes fighting for pay but also fighting for and it, this it already is in my opinion fighting for a uh, a better funded NHS, fighting for better funding for schools, fighting, you know, teachers are openly saying, look, we're not doing this for ourselves, we're doing this for our kids. And they're right about that. And it's perceived as being quite political. So the union leaders are way behind popular consciousness, in my opinion. But we have to say, you know, this is this is a fight for the kind of society that we want to live in. And the more that we can turn it into that kind of movement, in my opinion, the more popular it will become and the more influential it will become. And that's a, you know, this is the what I was talking about earlier. This is a battle over consciousness, shaping consciousness, even when people are fighting. You know, the teachers are fighting there, the nurses are fighting there, the bus workers are fighting there. That's crazy. And that is a situation which is largely being imposed by the way the unions are structured. We've got to try and, we've got to try and overcome those divisions. Even in France, where... There is a huge strike wave, as you've seen, massive protests, something like 75% opposition to the increase in the pension age that is being introduced by Macron. The strikes have huge popular support. Even in France, the union leaders have not called a general strike. What's the matter with them? It's an obvious next step. But the reason is the union leaders, you know, trade union consciousness is not the same as working class consciousness. It's a step on the way to it. But it's not the same. The union leaders, they tend to hold back the development of that real radical working class consciousness because it threatens their position as negotiators, to be honest. And so, you know, if I was in France, I'd be saying, I think you could, uh, it would be the moment where you'd be saying, we need a general strike. That is the next step. I mean, in a way, I think that's what we need here. But I think it's uh, probably a bit too far ahead of where people are at. But we need more coordination. We need more escalation. These are the things that I think are essential now to take the movement forward. There's a whole lot of other questions, don't get me wrong, but you asked about the central issue. Mm. Yeah, so similarly to that, if we're talking about um, strategies of kind of trying to generalise this movement, um, if we, when we're using a kind of united front strategy to try to kind of build the biggest coalition that we can, um, 
What do you think about the critiques of it that when we're trying to do it in times when liberalism is still quite a hegemonic force, that we're kind of diluting the radicalism of the movement rather than radicalizing the liberals? How should we manage that idea of trying to build like a different pole of attraction? Well, first of all, I don't really believe that. I mean, liberalism is, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that it is hegemonic in, 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 in the way that most people understand that word. I mean, it's hegemonic in the sense that politically in, in Westminster, it's completely hegemonic. I'm not sure it's hegemonic in society as a whole, because I think most people, I mean, you know, it's the source of massive alienation, massive bitterness and anger against the political system. Um, so, you know, that's one aspect of the answer. The other one is that a united front is not just trying to organise um, just the broadest possible campaign, end of story. United Front is uh, a strategy that is used by socialists and revolutionaries to try and draw around us the widest possible social forces around demands that can take the movement forward. And in my opinion, I think it's nonsense to say that fighting against austerity, for example, or fighting for a better funded NHS or fighting against the war in Ukraine. These are partial demands around which you can build big movements. It's nonsense to say those are, you know, those wouldn't be if they were won, if they were achieved, they wouldn't be big steps forward for the working class. Too much of the left is just abstract. It's just involved in being more radical than thou, being propagandist, you know, calling for full communism now, et cetera, et cetera. That's not a way to actually draw people together. We want some victories. Victories are important, A, because they make life a little bit better, B, because they give people confidence in their ability to fight themselves. So, so you know, anyone who thinks that it wasn't good that a load of people went out and marched against King Charles III or that there was a demonstration in defence of the NHS earlier this year. I mean, you know, what planet are you living on if you don't think that's important? Of course it's important because it's out of those basic struggles that a higher level of consciousness can grow. It's also true, and this is where your point has, you know, an important validity and an important truth. It's also true that as a socialist, as a revolutionary inside the wider movements, I reserve my right to put my case at any time. Not not to break up the coalition, not to, you know, go and march on my own, but to say, you know, I'm with you in the fight against austerity. I'm with you in the fight uh, to defend the NHS. I'm with you in your fight for better pay. But I also think that we need to start moving beyond those partial issues towards something more holistic. I think we need to say that there is a systemic problem here, that all of these issues, the racism that people feel in society, the question of the climate disaster, the climate catastrophe and emergency, the cost of living crisis, all of these things ultimately have their source in uh, a, a capitalist system that is in deep, deep and complex crisis. Now, it's no good just saying that. Well, it's better to say it than not to say it, but it will never really create a movement, a, a real mass socialist movement to just say it. You have to be involved in the day-to-day struggles, but you also have to point out it's not enough to be in the, involved in the day-to-day struggles. You have to also, within them, raise the wider questions. So I think it's always a, qu- a case of doing both things, of being at front and centre in the movements, 
and at the at the cutting edge of resistance, but also to be raising the next step, to be saying this is one aspect of a system that is in danger of destroying the future of humanity, to be honest. That's not an exaggeration now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crucial. Good answer. Lenin said that revolution becomes possible when the ruling class can no longer rule as they once did and the working class can no longer live as they once did. Is that true today? I mean, I think we are moving into a situation where both of those both of those um, elements are in place, certainly in large parts of the world. And, you know, it's, it's almost like being forgotten, but actually there have been revolutionary movements in the recent past. In 2011, in Tunisia and Egypt, if you recall, there were, you know, there were revolutions that dominated the headlines of the media for, I don't know, weeks, if not months. In Sudan, there is a revolutionary process still unfolding. There have been a whole series of movements in Latin America that probably haven't been revolutionary quite, but have been, you know, big, insurgent, mass popular movements in the last few years. So, you know, that to me underlines the, the point you're making that, that neoliberalism is, you know, it's unlivable for millions of people around the world, for hundreds of millions of people around the world. It's, it's taken whole societies to the brink of collapse or actually into collapse. Um, and it is, it is causing a, a, you know, a catastrophe. It's the cause of the, obviously, the refugee crisis. It's ravaging whole areas of the globe. So I think, in a sense, we are we do have that that element is in place. I think the ruling class is, you know, fumbling around trying to find a way forward, and it's not doing particularly well at doing. Look at the British ruling class. I mean, apart from the British sort of political elite at the moment, apart from being, you know, vicious and nasty, they're also obviously incompetent, and they're effectively just. They just talk about stuff, but they don't actually do anything useful. And to the extent that the the society is becoming a kind of a common or garden observation that Britain doesn't work anymore, it's just dysfunctional. So there are strong elements of what you say in place. The problem we have, and this element is also crucial, is that there needs to be some political leadership. There needs to be political organisations that are providing answers, that are providing a way forward. And I think. This is why, you know, for me, the left is in a fair mess at the moment and is very divided and uh, and fairly confused and on the whole. I mean, there's million, it's actually in Britain, the left is quite big, funnily enough, if you think of all the people who are around the Corbyn project and so on and so forth, but it's going through quite a confused moment. And in a way, that's the small, in my small way, I wanted to make a contribution to that by trying to say, look, we've got to put the working class and working class struggle back at the centre of uh, the of the project for political change. And I think until that happens, you know, we're going to we're not going to be able to take the, the situation forward. I just wanted to touch on something that we've been working on that should be coming out soon and then just like kind of conclude with the themes that we've been talking about because we're working on a series currently called the end of history where we're trying to in a video project show the social movements that have arisen between the fall of the soviet union and today in this period that you talk about being understudied and under reckoned with the actual potential radicalism that existed in all these different movements um like the arab spring so connected to that why is it important to kind of periodize this history in order to break with the consensus today? Well, 
I mean, that's a very interesting question. I mean, one thing just on the on the social movements, you're right in saying that they have been sort of counted out of the history of the left, really, by by a lot of people. I mean, and famously, um, Frederick Jameson said in whenever it was 1999 or 2000 that you know people can more easily imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And he said that just at the time when there was this mass movement that erupted around the world called the anti-capitalist movement that had another world is possible as its main slogan. So, I mean, you do sort of feel that much of the pessimism of the left comes from the intellectuals in their ivory towers who haven't got a clue what is actually going on on the ground. And we do need to reconnect our analysis with the, the actual struggles. And that's why, you know, I think ac- the, acad- the academic world has been a big problem that the way in which Marxism has, has to a certain extent been taken over by academia is, is very, very problematic because it's disconnected the movement with the theory and we've got to overcome that and get back to a situation where, you know, there's a, Marxism is nothing if not the, um, the, the kind of experience of the mass movements and the labour movement um, analysed and then reapplied. That is what Marxism is about. Um, so, so I think that's a very important um, element of this. And in terms of the of the periodization of the last uh, few years, I mean, I think one very important aspect of this is that I think it's fair to say that you could see a pattern, um, say, since the beginning of this century, where there's been mass movements, really quite serious mass movements, uh, that in certain cases have been really quite, you know, quite challenging to the system, whether you're talking about the anti-capitalist movement, the anti-war movement, to some extent, the um, well, definitely the anti-austerity movements in 2011, which had an influence on the Egyptian revolution and uh, sort of interacted with the Egyptian revolution and the Arab Spring. And then, you know, more recently, the... Black Lives Matter and some of those um, movements as well. But there are times when uh, there becomes a, 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 a mood to sort of politicise these campaigns or to give these campaigns a political representation. And the form that has taken over the last 20 years has tended to be a, a kind of left um, reformism, whether it's Syriza in Greece or Corbynism in Britain or Bernie Sanders in the US or, you know, the left bloc in Portugal Dilinka in Germany and so on and so forth. Now these are important projects, but what has happened is that each time you have these projects emerging, you see the the a down a, a sort of downturn in the street movements, in the protest movements, in the organising on the ground, and you know people kind of think, okay, now we've got parliamentary representation, everything's going to be all right. So you see a cycle of protest, parliamentary response, protest, parliamentary response, which really isn't getting us very far. And I think, you know, while not downplaying these electoral projects, I think we've got to say that the emphasis needs to be on the organising on the ground. The emphasis needs to be on creating a left that relates to struggle primarily. Because the problem with all these left electoral um, projects, with possibly the slight exception of La France Saint-Soumise, actually, which is playing a slightly different role, but most of them turned their backs on the struggle the moment they started to become influential. I mean, you know, to be honest with you, in during the Corbyn period, 
where he was leader of the Labour Party. For all that it was very important and it popularised socialist ideas and it had a galvanising effect in lots of ways, it was virtually impossible to get a protest on the streets because the whole of the left was looking to Parliament. And that's a, and obviously that's what happened with Syriza massively in Greece. And we've got to be careful about this and we've got to understand that, you know, in the end of the day, the parliamentary expression of the social movements is important, but secondary. The movement itself, the working class itself, is what must come first. Because all of these parliamentary expressions came out of mass movements, actually. You know, and then the mass movement is forgotten. So we've got to get ourselves out of that cycle. And I believe we have to reassert the real revolutionary tradition. We have This is where socialism, this is what Marx stood for. This is what Engels stood for. This is what Sylvia Pankhurst and Rosa Luxemburg and Trotsky and Lenin and, the, you know, the great revolutionaries stood for. And that's where we've got to, re, you know, we've got to reestablish that. And that's exactly why I wrote this book, that, you know, in the end of the day, the emancipation of the working class will be the act of the working class. No one is going to do it for us. No parliament is going to enact liberation. No parliament is going to deal with climate change. That's the truth. No parliament is going to massively redistribute wealth in favour, away from the rich. No parliament is going to challenge the power of the big corporations in a serious way. The only way this is going to happen, and parliament can be part of that, but the only way this can be really done is by mass movements that mobilise millions of people on the ground and that start to uh, to create power in the workplaces. That's the real counterpower. The sooner the left realises that, the better. Thanks so much again for coming on the podcast with us. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. To fund the police. Fund them. Fund them. Hopefully you've enjoyed that interview as much as we did making it. A huge thanks from us to Chris for his time, for the book itself, which you can get. It's published by Zero Books. We're going to put the link in the description and we highly recommend that you get a copy. It's available in paperback and as an ebook, and it's a really, really good read. There's also a conference that Counterfire is running on the 10th of June called How We Fight, How We Win, a rank and file organising conference which we also recommend taking a look at. It's on Eventbrite and the link to that is also in the description. Yeah, um, and in the same theme, it represents exactly what's needed next uh, and such an important intervention in terms of organisational this time and kind of comes out of the theory we've been discussing of what's needed because we have this big upsurge in the labour movement, in the union activity in the UK. Um, but what we're missing and what's kind of holding that movement back is that the rank and file themselves, who are represented by the union leadership, are not organised effectively enough. And so what you get is these accepting of bad uh, offers from the government in the public sector, and also different unions dividing, some of them accepting, and then the whole class begins to become increasingly fractured. So organising this rank and file, the member level, can overcome some of those contradictions in the leadership, which has historically held the labour movement back. Yeah, it's a great opportunity for workers, cross sectors, across um, unions to come together and to discuss how they want to coordinate um, and 
as Counterfire puts it, it's open to every trade unionist who wants to see strike action coordinated and escalated. So um, that should be a really good conversation. Uh, it's on Saturday, the 10th of June. And then we've got End of History coming out on YouTube imminently. So keep an eye on that and subscribe to us over there. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we're starting our fortnightly podcasts from the 30th of June. So subscribe to us wherever you listen to us right now. If it's where you listen to your podcasts, click subscribe. We'll be posting from the 30th of June on all major podcasting platforms. And you can support us on Patreon. Uh, and you can get there by going to themole.world forward slash support. Uh, that will take you across to our Patreon page where you can pick from a, a range of different amounts that uh, would come to us monthly to support us in producing the content that we're trying to put together. So we'd really appreciate it if you did that too. Yeah, and thanks and shout out to our current patrons who helped us get to this stage now, which is exciting. Absolutely. It's, it's very exciting. We've got lots coming. Really looking forward to getting going with the podcast as well. We've got so many subjects in the backlog, haven't we, Fred? Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll start discussing those very soon. And in the meantime, take care.